You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast, a companion piece to the Routledge Press publication, 50 Key Stage Musicals, which is available for purchase by going to routledge.com or by clicking the link below in today's show description. Today's episode focuses on Chapter 40, Susicle, and with us today is the composer of Susicle, Stephen Flaherty. In addition to today's musical in question, Flaherty has composed the scores for Lucky Stiff, Once on This Island, Rocky the Musical, and A Man of No Importance. He won both the Tony Award and Drama Desk Award for his score for Ragtime, and his work on the animated movie Anastasia was nominated for two Academy Awards and a Golden Globe. In 2015, he was inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. Stephen, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Hey, Andrew, thanks for asking. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start at the very beginning. Right. It's a very good place to start. It's always a good place to start. Where did the idea for Susicle come from? How did this whole journey begin? Well, it's an interesting thing because a lot of the choices that my uh, writing partner, Lynn Ahrens, uh, who is a librettist as well as a lyricist, uh, that she and I make oftentimes have to do with what we've just done previously you know because we always like to take uh, left turns we never like to repeat ourselves we like to do uh, work that's challenging but also different for us and hopefully if the process of the writing itself can be different and challenging then that's that's like a such a great bonus so uh, actually Lynn and I had uh, written the score for ragtime which was like doing uh, the sprint over the long distance course. So the writing was very fast, and yet it took about two and a half years from the first draft to uh, the opening on Broadway. So uh, it, it was a wonderful experience for all of us. And uh, we were working at the time uh, with a producing organization called Livent, which was based in Toronto, Canada, which is actually where we did the uh, the world premiere of Ragtime. We did it in Toronto, then LA, and then finally we, we got to Broadway. So um, yeah, so we were working with a rather controversial figure, which uh, I think many of your listeners may have heard of, Garth Drabinsky. So he was, it, it, Ragtime was sort of his brainchild. 
and uh, he he saw it as part of a trilogy that he wanted to do about American history, uh, with the other two pieces being his landmark production of Showboat, uh, which had preceded Ragtown by, I believe, like three years, and uh, and then Parade, which was uh, written by Alfred Urey and Jason Robert Brown, which uh, followed us. And uh, I don't know how he got this idea, but he had this idea, which I thought was very exciting, very different, and uh, a totally new thing for me and in terms of changing direction. Uh, he had gotten the rights for all of the Dr. Seuss books from uh, the Dr. Seuss estate, which is uh, run by uh, the uh, Ted Geisel, who is Dr. Seuss, by his widow, uh, Audrey. So she was sort of the keeper of the who's, if you will. And, uh, and, and Garth had gotten uh, the rights to these books. And honestly, after like two and a half years of seeing your leading man being shot in the final scene of your show, I, I thought it might be a good idea to lighten up a bit. I thought it might be a good idea to try our hands at a comedy. And yet we were both still enamored of the idea of working on a piece that involved multiple storylines. Because at Ragtime, as you know, uh, is the story of three distinct groups of people uh, that by the final scene merge into one new and newly minted American family. And we thought, hmm, that it's an interesting idea of using characters that uh, might not have intersected this time in their original stories, but we could create a way for them to intersect in the musical. And uh, so we began to talk about it. And honestly, uh, I don't think this is speaking out of school, but uh, my partner Lynn had done a lot of children's television and uh, produced a lot of children's television and family uh, TV. Uh, in her early years and you know after doing a show like ragtime it's like you can't go back to before she kept saying you know <laughs> mother it's like I can never go back to before I've done this and, and I said well wait a second let's let's talk about it and and there was something wonderful about the language of Seuss and the more we read it and the thing about Seuss is you have to read it aloud it's not meant to be read you know silently it's it's meant to because part of the joy and part of uh the whole experience of dr seuss's work is that you read to somebody else so we started <laughs> going through the entire enormous pile of dr seuss books reading aloud to one another and uh it i i was very excited about it because i i, I thought it could be something that didn't have to be slavishly uh, attached to any one historical, historical or cultural period, whereas ragtime, I had to do so much um, research, and I loved it, you know, because I'm a research junkie. Uh, but uh, it, it was firmly rooted in a very particular time in American history, and uh, and it was about a very particular. Uh, group actually through three groups of people so uh, the score had to reflect that and had to reflect that accurately and and even though you know it, it, it still is a modern American musical it had to really be rooted in in American history and, and American historic sounds where Seussical 
didn't have to be rooted in anything. You know, you're creating your own worlds. You're creating the jungle of Newell. What does the jungle of Newell sound like? You're creating the world of who, of the who's and whoville. And uh, I just love the idea that after being tied, you know, I don't, that sounds negative, but being restrained by certain historical conventions that I could just go wild and I could just be playful. And I, I think we all knew that the show had to be playful. It was about play. Uh, it was something interesting, you know, because I was about to hit 40. And <laughs> there is something really fun about going back to your childhood when you're about to hit 40, you know, and remember the things that you loved as a kid and the things that you grooved to and the kinds of music that you listened to. And so it just became like a big free association. So, so to cut to the chase, I finally convinced Lynn that this is something that we should at the very least explore. And that's that's how we began the process. And we uh, said to Garth and uh, the Live End Company, we're excited about this. It's very different, but in a certain way, it's a multi-character story. And that's of great interest to us. It's based on a beloved uh, author's work, you know, where Ragtime was based on E.L. Doctorow, this was based on Ted Geisel, who I had grown up with. You know, my first experience of a book was One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, that was read to me by my mother. And that's my first re remembrance of literature and the love of rhyme, the love of sound, uh, the love of uh, how his illustrations started with very simple line drawings and became incredibly complex and uh, how they involve primary colors but at the same time the level of complexity uh, would escalate the further you would get into the book and that's what I thought the the score should be I thought let's use those primary colors let's not be afraid of C major but then as we go into it and the stories could could collide and merge then that's where the complexity comes from so we were really excited and um, I can't remember how this came about, but during the early days of Susicle, uh, we thought since it was really an original musical, you know, because we were using certain stories, certain characters, uh, but we, we thought it would be fun maybe to have a third collaborator who was wild and playful and out there and all of those wonderful things that are implied and in the Seuss material. And so we began to work with Eric Idle, who I don't, I don't know if you're an Eric Idle fan, but I grew up with Monty Python. My father could never understand what that show is about. I don't, I don't think he could get beyond the, the British accents, you know, like, what, what are they saying? You think this is funny? What, what is that? And I, I thought it was wild and inventive and hilarious. And Eric was also a very musical person from what I had heard. We hadn't met him. But it was just a, a strong gut hunch. And I thought, you know, we should totally meet. We should have a meeting. We should talk about various things, about music, about what this maybe could be. And, you know, if it, if it doesn't come to pass, then we've had a wonderful lunch, you know, and that that's great too, you know. So uh, Eric was with us in the, the early days. And uh, when we were looking with with him in terms of what were the major stories. And uh, as we know, Dr. Seuss is not necessarily big on plot. So when you go through the, his oeuvre, you know, um, obviously the Horton stories, there are two, two books, uh, Horton Hears a Who and um, Horton Hatches the Egg. So they both had 
beginnings, middles, and ends. And 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 then we were looking uh, at some of the other books, and some had elements of story, and some just had interesting situations or or interesting supporting characters that we thought could pop up here and there, and you know. And really, at the first meeting when we were sitting uh, in Lynn's apartment with Eric, he said, "Well, who's the love interest?" That was literally his first question. And uh, I said, "You know, I don't know that there are love interests in Seuss, and in, and in fact, I don't even know if there's necessarily gender to to most of these characters. You know, they, you, there's so many different ways that you could go. Like the Cat in the Hat. You know, we assume he is a male." character but you know we, we've seen him since or her since being or they since being portrayed by women and 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 it's, it's and there's like a real gender fluidity and actually a lot of these stories so whenever we were asked well what's the central romantic you know uh coupling and 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 who are the characters uh, we, we knew that we had we loved the, the Horton stories, and they obviously had the strongest backbone. And I think ultimately they had such a beautiful message to them. So we had to think, well, who is the romantic interest? And oddly, in one of the books uh, that was called Yertle the Turtle and Other Stories, the one of the two other stories that was in there featured a character uh, called Gertrude McFuzz. And she was a rather, I don't want to use the word plain, but she was not a flashy bird. In fact, she only had one tail feather. And um, there was something interesting about the story because basically she feels that she needs, you know, this big tail. Uh, and she basically becomes a, a drug addict. She goes to, <laughs> to a doctor named Dake who gives her pills that will make her tail grow and you know by changing her body you know which is like very you know in, in our contemporary society she changes her body and she finds that the thing that made her unique she loses because she can no longer fly and uh we thought that could be a really interesting character like what if she's literally the girl next door or the girl down the street or the person that you necessarily don't notice you know, and the the idea that she has a lot of self worth, but incredibly low self esteem. We thought that could be a really interesting character to to play off off of Horton. And the further we got into it and wrote their storylines and their relationship, uh, which which is nowhere in the Seuss books, they never meet. Which is the the really cool thing and the challenge of Seussical, is they these characters never meet, but in our musical they do. And it's about how they impact on one another's story. And the thing that was so moving that we discovered fairly early on, Lynn and I, was uh, that at the end of the show, uh, there's a nuclear family, which is uh, the mayor of who his wife and the son, which is or the child, uh, whose, whose name is Jojo. And there's also a very, very unconventional family. It's a, a bird, an elephant, and they come together because they love one another. And ugh, I'm getting teary even thinking of this ending. And uh, they, um, they decide to raise a child together because each of them has something to bring to the relationship. And uh, so we end with this beautiful, unconventional 
non-nuclear family that's only held together by love and it's an elephant a bird and an elephant bird and they're committed and it's a beautiful ending and once we knew that that would be the ending of the show we knew that we had to to write the rest of it basically so that's what we did wow and i mean it's so evident from even just listening to the score of this show that Mm -hmm. this heart is so present you hit the nail on the head you know with moments like sala salu or even you know some of the songs that gertrude sings they they're so tender they're so full of human emotion um, and they're so driven by a plot that, as you sort of said, had to be fabricated. For yeah. This show. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, right from the beginning, we never thought of them as drawings. We never thought of them as two-dimensional characters. Mm-hmm. And we never thought of them as cartoons. You know, we thought of them as people who were in the their lives dealing with, you know, uh, a lot of things against them. You know, I mean, uh, Horton goes through such a journey, but he never lose he never loses faith, and he never uh, circles back, and he never gives up. He tries his best, you know. And we we really connected strongly with these characters and and what they had to say about us, you know, uh, uh, people you know living on the planet today, and the idea that the world is saved, you know, by a, a small child who finally raises his voice and finds his voice. And um, that was such a a beautiful thing to say and I think an important thing to say because I think a lot of kids think, and adults too, you know, (laughs) think, oh, well, what's, you know, it's fruitless for me to raise my voice or to get involved in anything because it's going to, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And I think the story in its own way said, no, you have to get involved and you have to speak up. And you don't think you have power, but you do. And you have to find that within yourself. And that was something that we were really committed to saying. So we always, we never thought of them as like two-dimensional. We always thought of them as three-dimensional and tried to make sure that they had a a full um, emotional life. You know, that that was important. And that's where the songs came from too. Do you think, is that full emotional life? does that already exist in the Dr. Seuss books or is that something you sort of had to sort of stuff in there? Well, certainly it's, I think it exists in the Horton books. Okay. And uh, Gertrude in her book, uh, she's sort of portrayed as low self-esteem, but also vain, you know? And uh, in our book, we sort of shifted that that you know we recalibrated that uh, a bit um oddly the character of the cat in the hat who's probably the most famous of the seuss characters we were allowed to use the character but we were not allowed to use any element of the plot from either book and why you ask uh, because the seuss estate um knew uh that, well, there was a movie that was coming out with Mike Myers as the the cat in the hat that had not yet been filmed, but it was in the pipeline, as they say. And uh, so they didn't want us, they didn't want to sell us that story. They, they said, you can use the characters, you know, you can, and uh, 
it, it was it was really tricky writing for the cat in the hat when you couldn't use the plot you know I mean, basically he comes it's a, it's a quintessential uh childhood story of fear you know where your life and your house and everything gets out of control and you can't get it back, you know, into control, and you know your parents are on their, their way home. And we couldn't really use any of that, you know. So we thought, how can this character function? And uh, we thought it would be interesting if he was sort of, in a weird way, our tour guide, like he was the MC in Cabaret. But then we thought it could be even more fun if we had him pop up doing various cameos as different characters where he's always you know the cat in the hat persona but you know all of a sudden he's a newscaster and all of a sudden the cat uh later is this horrible man who runs uh the circus mcgurkis in act two and he would show up in these different personas and that the and that the obviously the parents could never see him but the kid could you know <laughs> and, and so that we we thought that was part of the fun and we we realized that the cat in the hat whoever we would cast in the role had to have kind of a baggy pants quality so we we for our very first reading and, and mind you this is uh sort of like a sidebar but by the time we were ready and had written a draft and we were ready for a first reading of the show uh the company live Ent had gone into default uh garth drabinsky had gotten arrested you know i mean this is this is almost like the cat in the hat plot if you think about it it's it's like your producer has been arrested he's behind bars the company is uh like in a tailspin uh there are people saying well i'll buy that company and oddly our little show susicle was considered an asset you know, I considered it a beautiful show about making connections. It was considered by the business folks as an asset. So rather than just wait to see like how it all shook down, as they say in show business, we decided, you know, we should just go ahead and let's do Mickey and Judy make a show in the barn. And so Lynn and I decided that sounds good. Let's do that. So we would, uh, we asked, can we have some seed money? And we called up friends. And we called up our friend Kevin Chamberlain. Would you like to be uh, Horton the Elephant? We called up Janine Lamana, who had just done Evelyn Nesbitt. And uh, Kevin had done My Favorite Year with us. So we, we call up Janine. Would you like to be, to be Gertrude McFuzz? Oh, I don't know that character. And I said, Janine, it's the female lead. <laughs> You're going to want to do this character. And then uh, Eric Idle said, oh, I'd like to be the cat in the hat. And he's like as zany as a gets on two feet. And so... Uh, we called up our friends one one by one, and Michelle Pock would play Maisie LeBurb, who was like sort of a, a seedy Las Vegas showgirl bird gone bad, <laughs> and uh, who realizes that she can't that she can't uh, take care of a child that she's brought into the world. You know, so there there are actually substantial you know adult themes in this show, even though you know you could think of it as like a kid's show or a family show, but they were, you know. So anyhow, we called up all of our favorite people and they all said, yes, we'll do it. And so uh, I music directed it with my friend David Holsenberg uh, and Lynn, uh, she was the director. We had no director attached. We, she said, okay, when you say your line, stand up, like turn to her. And we just had very inventive friends and actors. And uh, it was a huge success, our little, 
reading. And then we did a, a workshop later in Toronto where uh, we had the first of many sex changes in our show. We had Andrea Martin as the cat in the hat. And by the time the show came to Broadway, it was David Shiner as the cat in the hat, uh, who's an amazing baggy pants uh, comedian who's known for his work primarily with with both Cirque du Soleil and Bill, Bill Irwin. And uh, so he's like sort of a, a neo-modern uh, circus performer. And so the role as it developed with these three amazing uh, amazing and amazingly different comics became sort of like a vaudevillian role. So that's how that score developed, Where, whereas uh, The Jungle of Newell, that became uh, a score about uh, jungle sounds, about urban sounds. I was walking through uh, uh, Union Square, uh, Union Square Park, and there were all, a lot of people down there with beatboxes and boomboxes, and there was a lot of rhythm and stuff happening, and I thought, oh, it's like an urban jungle. What, what, what if the jungle of Newell is an urban jungle? What if that's and so that's how that that area of the show got its sound. And and who was a little more tricky? You know, I, you know, we know them as tiny little people. And um, for some reason, I just started freelancing about like like very bizarre music that I enjoyed as a kid. And there was uh, a guy named Spike Jones, uh, not the not the film director Spike Jones, but Spike Jones, who did a series of insanely bizarre records uh, where he would use odd sound effects and kazoos and all kinds of uh, odd instrumentation. And I thought, you know, maybe that's what Whoville could be. Maybe it's like River City from the Music Man, but on helium. And maybe <laughs> it helped me by very small instruments. And I was working with my friend Doug Besterman. Uh, we, we've done many shows before and since. And we just started loving the idea of like going to Kmart and getting very small instruments. <laughs> instruments and and sampling them you know so there would be little kazoos and little strange shakers and you know like things that a, a child would pick up but if you magnified it magnified the sound of it it could become this other thing and so we started doing very odd sound experiments uh thinking that that could be part of the orchestration and we started using jungle sounds and that started becoming uh, the jungle of Newell stuff. We started looping them. We started looping the sound of like low pitched, uh, you know, animals, and then high pitched, you know, high pitched birds, low pitched, you know, grunts. And uh, we started making dance loops. And I thought, well, this is fun. I mean, it, it was like the most fun in terms of just playing with music that I had had in you know probably since I was ten. <laughs> so so we were we were just like so grooving on on just the playfulness and what you could do and how you could create worlds of sound based on sounds you heard around you and also homemade objects like you could take your mother's you know pots and pans and that could become a an instrument so that was sort of our experimentation with trying to find the sound of the show this episode is brought to you by shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That's amazing. Do you think that of your works that you've gotten to work on, mm. is this one that you're kind of like, yeah, this could be in the book, 50 key stage musicals. Or is it surprising to you that Susicle is the subject of our interview today. Well, honestly, if your book was called 50 Key Musicals that had incredibly challenging histories, uh-huh. I would say, oh, well, that's going to be like top five right there, you know, <laughs> because, because we just, it, it was a very challenging history. And, you know, it's not, uh, we, we were also one of the shows that was working out of town right as the internet burst onto the scene. So uh, for whatever reason, people, were hyper aware and wanted to be hyper aware of every little word, nuance and note and costume that was changed on our show out of town. And honestly, and not making this up at at all, there were so many more changes that were made in the course of ragtime between, uh, you know, the world premiere, the LA premiere, and finally reaching Broadway uh, nearly a year and a half after its world premiere. There were so many changes, costumes, numbers, lines, uh, orchestrations, uh, every department, but it wasn't documented. You know what I mean? And I think, I think a lot of, you know, that the, you know, the, whatever you want to call it, like the, underbelly of showbiz that's the dark side you know for people that love to live in chat rooms that fed it our little our little show about innocence and imagination it just fed that uh because i think people were looking for dish and you know and they were overturning it and it, it got very frankly paranoid because there were so many things that were reported on the internet that were private you know and and including Star yells at wife at intermission during Boston tryout show. And it's like, how did they know that? And why is that going around? And like, not, and none of it was reflective of the work that we were trying to do. And yet it was there, you know, it was very present. So uh, needless to say, Boston, <laughs> Boston was pretty much a disaster. The, the show had been taken over by producers that wanted it to be sexy and a sexy date night show and 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 they wanted it to be all things for all people and you know when we saw the first posters it was alarming because it was like i don't even want to say what the image was but it was just offensive in five different ways it's simultaneously on one poster and 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 so we had lost control of our show you know because of producerial demands like you've got to cut and, and the audience they, they loved a section in Boston called the the Lorax which again is a beautiful uh, story and a necessary story and it's about uh, protecting the planet against against the ravages of people that just want to uh, rip things apart for capital gain and you know their own various selfish reasons and it, it appeared in act two as, as a little eight minute almost like a mini pop opera and it was the cast's favorite <laughs> favorite um part of the show 
And one critic out of town said, what's that Lorex doing there? What, what does that have to do with Act Two? And our producers caved and they said, that's gonna come out of the show, you know? And and we're like, it's a beautiful part of the show. If, granted, it's not linear. It's like hallucinatory if you wanna go there, you know, but kids are hooking into it. The cast is hooking into it. Design-wise, it's kind of extraordinary. And to make a long story sh short, uh, by the time that next week rolled around in Boston, the entire set of the Lorax was in an alley behind the oh, Colonial wow. Theater. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it was and it was removed from the show. And that was like kind of the beginning of, you know, a por forces beyond ourselves, you know, changing what the show wanted to be. So by the time we got to New York, uh, honestly, it wasn't it wasn't the show I knew that we loved and it wasn't even the show we had written because it had been changed so much in the production. And, uh, you know, even uh, one of our dear fr friends who's since been licensing, licensing I'll, I'll mention his name, why not? Freddie Gershon at MTI, who, you know, was, is, is such a supporter of our work. And uh, he and the company were behind Susicle and wanted to, you know, lease it. And they, they thought it could be a show that people would love. And uh, he said, you know, I love the show. I'm not sure about the production and something tells me this isn't the end, you know, and, you know, as writers, you know, you always think that, you know, you open on Broadway and, you know, either, either you're a hit or you're a flop and it either goes or it ends. And oddly, I believed in the show so much as did Lynn. And we believed that that was one of the first of the many well, actually, the cat has nine lives, doesn't he? So that was maybe the second of the lies, of the lives of the cat in the hat. And I, I would like to think of that as the world's most expensive workshop ever produced, because we went beyond there, which is the happy part of the story. We rewrote it. Uh, we had a national tour. Uh, we did an alternative version, which was for theater for young audiences at the Coterie Theater, which is in Kansas City, uh, that was spearheaded by Jeff Church. And he said, I think there's a show, and we were talking about maybe refocusing the show. And so we lost plot lines, we lost characters, we refocused it as a 75 to 80 minute show, which we actually thought worked better in some some surprising way. Uh, and another thing also, you know, when you think about how kids process information, kids don't understand meanwhile, you know, like, so in other words, if you're taking one of your storylines and you're going now meanwhile, and then you jump to a different story, they assume that it's chronological because it follows that. And just the idea that it could have happened simultaneously or earlier or, you know, just just jumping in time as we see all the time, you know, in a, I don't know, all of our, the television shows that we binge watch and, you know, film and everywhere. Uh, little minds don't don't process meanwhile very well. So we took a lot of the meanwhile subplots out okay. and, and, and refocused it as primarily the, the Horton story with the cat, you know, still, still a character. And uh, by total coincidence, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the theater that offered us our very first chance to be produced in New York City uh, w- was a, a children's a family theater called Theater Works USA. And they commissioned us like back in the day, <laughs> you know, uh, to write a, a children's show. And we wrote uh, uh, our version of The Emperor's New Clothes. And that was the pr- first thing, pre-Lucky Stiff, that we had had produced uh, in New York. And they came back to us and they said, we hear that you're working on this new TYA family version of Susigal. We'd like to produce it. We'd like to take it around the country as a tour. And if that goes well, we would love to bring it back off-Broadway to the Lucio Lortel Theater oh, wow. uh, in, in on Christopher Street, which is, you know, a, a, an amazing theater. You know, we it, I, I've seen so many things that I've just loved there. And, you know, there's the part of your mind you know, when you really believe in something, and obviously even after all of that, we still believed in it because we knew there was a good show in there. And um, there was something about returning to New York that was both exciting and both and scary, you know, because we did not get great reviews the first time out. And it's like, do you really, do you really want to go for like the second helping of that? You know, think about that. And, but but we, we were talking about it and uh, oddly, uh, Marsha Milgram Dodge, we had gotten to know her, uh, I believe the, chronolog- the, the, the chronological uh, timing was, uh, she, she had done um, the ragtime that was at uh, the Kennedy Center that, that we then brought to New York. And I believe the Susicle was after that. But even, before, even around that time, she also did a wonderful Once on this Island that was at Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor, where, uh, where I had a home. And so uh, I knew Marsha's work, and I knew that she liked to try new ideas, and it wouldn't be about changing the text, not that it hadn't been changed a lot, you know, by that point. But uh, her initial response to it was about the playfulness that she saw inherent in the piece, which is the exact same quality that we had when we did that, our first Mickey and Judy do a show in the barn reading with Eric Idle and friends, it had that kind of ad hoc, like, like kids, you could do this show in your basement, you know, get your, you know, 10 favorite friends, you know, go down, you know, and, and put on, on a show with whatever's at hand. You know, if you have a turkey baster or, or well, not an electric drill, you wouldn't want to do that. But like paint, paint cans or old rubber boots that your father, you know, doesn't wear anymore. You know, whatever you have at hand, you know, just use that. That, that And that'll, you'll be able to do the show with that. And she came up with that notion and we felt like that really reflected the spirit of the origins, you know, it, 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 it brought it back to the roots. And of course, between all that, we had had like, you know, glitzy Las Vegas version, and this version and that version, and and it just felt right. And, and we said, let's go with that. And so she used uh, minimal sets, but there were moments when true Seuss magic happened, like in the middle of Sala Salu when uh, the circus creatures of the Circus McGurkis are trapped you know, as is Horton. And uh, we we had a Seuss moment there. We had uh, a Seuss moment in McGillicott's Pool, uh, which was all about the fish and, and about the magic, and she used puppets a lot. And But but 90% of that show was done with, like, you know, oven mitts, turkey basters, you know, hand mixers, uh, 
bowls that you would turn up upside down colanders and they would become helmets and that was in the sense of playfulness and the overture which I always rather liked you know because this show seemed to want an overture she set it on on a grade school playground and you could see who the bullies were and who the cool kids were and who were the people that were being bullied and who were the the people just trying to get through their day and it, it was rooted in real real life stuff that kids could totally identify with and then they became the characters you know so Horton was you know the kid in the corner being t tormented and Gertrude was the girl who was trying to come to his rescue but yeah, you know, so it started from a place of reality and then it became a fantasy with real emotions. And uh, we did get to the Lucille Lortel Theater and I'm happy to say it was a wonderful production. It was a production uh, that luckily we were able to record. So we have a second C uh, CD, second cast recording of Susigo of this new version. Uh, that 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 was released, which which was wonderful to be able to have, you know. Here here's where we started. This was the Broadway cast. Here's the off Broadway cast uh, for like Seuss nerds. You know, you can do a nice deep dive in that one, and uh, it was it was really well received by audiences and the critics, including the New York Times, who did everything but like you know tie us you know to a pole in Times Square and, you know, proceed to whip us in front of the Broadway community, you know? And I, it's it, it's wonderful because, you know, in your fantasy life as a writer, you would always, well, at least I do, but I think other writers do too. You, you like to think they're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> you know, there's always that kernel of that. And and I thought, I know there, there's a good show in here. It just has not come out or people can't see it yet. and. Like Horton, we we stayed true to the cause and we saw it through. And and now Susicle's out in the world and it's one of the most performed shows in America, which is wonderful. And it's great. And there, there you have it. Do you think it's one of the most performed shows in America because of that off-Broadway production? Because it could get back to the playfulness, the creativity, the imagination that was at its heart? I, I, I think that that's part of it, although I have to say I've seen, you know, people send me photos and I see photos of various productions and some of them are incredibly elaborate, you know, where the, the moms like, you know, shout out to the moms who are working on those costumes and the sets and, and some of them are so beautiful and Seussian and out there. And, and some are hybrids, you know, some are hybrids of like this is, uh, and, and also a lot of them go back to the original drawings, you know, which we didn't honestly have in the original. And we suggested that and, and we had a couple of Seuss moments in the revival, but some, uh, some of these uh, community productions go full blown Seussical and uh, uh, they're extraordinary. I don't know how they, pull this off and one of the things that we had seen which just moved us to the core and that we thought was one of the all-time great things we had ever seen was uh we went we, well we went to a, a a theater for young audiences a broadway junior convention in atlanta we were the guests of mti and we got to see several susicles and several and a once on this island and several shows uh that young people were doing at their schools they all came there, I think it was 4,000 kids. And 
we, we were interviewed at, on one panel and uh, I said, can I ask how many of you in the audience of 4,000 kids, how many of you have done Susicle at your school? And it was virtually the entire audience. And I, it, I was just really moved and blown away. And I said, do you mind if I take a picture of you? And I took out my cell phone and I took a picture of this audience of all these kids just jumping, jumping up and down because they were so happy. And as was I. And the, the, the production of Susicle that I remember seeing down there, uh, it was uh, dir directed uh, and, and produced by uh, a, a gentleman who I believe is from Alabama. And he's like one of the, one of the great uh, music slash drama teachers probably in our country. Wow. He's an amazing un unsung hero. And for the moment of the elephant bird, you know, you know, it's done many different ways. Sometimes it's done with puppets. Sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes it's done with a shadow. Sometimes it's done with a sound effect of an egg cracking. And they get to the moment where the elephant bird is about to be hatched. And it was his child who was not even two years old, who had, the, who had these elephant ears on and these tiny little wings. And this beautiful baby was the elephant bird, you know, making his debut. As as like you know, the, the climax of the entire play, and I just thought that was magical. I mean, it was by far better than any special effect any theater could have dreamed up. Having this little person, you know, contributing to to the production. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today about Susicle. Mm. It's, it's it's total totally my pleasure, and I'm. Uh, saying this because I know Lynn will feel the same. We're just honored to be included in the book. It, I have to say it was a bit of a surprise, you know. We were, uh, but it's but it's it, it's wonderful. It's a story that has a wonderful uh, journey, you know, and it's uh, and it has a happy ending, both the show and its journey. So we're honored that it's included in the book. So thank you. Thanks for asking about today. Yeah, and. Thank you listeners for joining us today. Please make sure to purchase a copy of 50 Key Stage Musicals by visiting routledge.com or by clicking in today's show description. If you want to learn more about Susicle, please also review the links in the below description. I'm Andrew Child, and thank you for listening to 50 Key Stage Musicals, the podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.